studies that have come out since you and I last sat down. It's been a couple weeks now. Uh, so we're going to be talking about estrogen-related receptors, um, chocolate and cocoa for blood pressure, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's research that was apparently falsified, um, do antidepressants not work for depression because serotonin might not matter that much, all sorts of interesting topics. So uh, I suppose estrogen-related receptors are uh, the freshest in our mind and as good a place as any to start. So how did you come across this, uh, this paper on estrogen-related receptors and uh, the scientists trying to figure out what specific ligands are going to bind to that and, and what are those potential downstream clinical implications? How is this going to apply to human disease or human health? Mm-hmm. I believe I came across this looking into the first two estrogen receptors, not the estrogen-related receptors, but estradiol rece- receptor alpha and beta. And uh, just looking into what different synthetic estrogens and what different CIRMs are activating or inactivating, so agonists or antagonists at the alpha receptor and the beta receptor. And as it turns out, there's also estrogen-related receptors, which does not surprise me, but it is certainly interesting given that estrogen-related receptors have a very, very similar structure and sequence, amino acid sequence, to the estrogen receptors themselves. And there's estrogen-related receptor alpha, beta, and gamma. Gamma appears to be one of the main targets of bisphenol A, which is known as BPA, and estradiol receptor alpha, which is studied a lot in both metabolic dysfunction um, as something that could be activated to benefit metabolic dysfunction and also something that could be a target to inactivate in states of cancer like breast cancer. Yeah, and it seems like the effects would be tissue specific. So Mm -hmm. in mammary tissue, if you were able to target that subset of tissue and inactivate that receptor, it's a novel target for uh, the oncology field. Yes. If you were able to, let's say, perhaps target that in skeletal muscle tissue, which is you know, the main glucose disposal site, Absolutely. you may be able to promote better metabolic health. And I sort of hypothesized about this a little bit, and this is just pure speculation. Uh, I'm not a, a PhD in you know, ligand binding to a subtype of estradiol receptors, mm-hmm. uh, or estrogen-related receptors, I should say more accurately. But um, the thought crossed my mind that you know if cholesterol, which is thought to be a uh, endogenous ligand for activating this receptor, uh, an agonist, if you will, and that is something that could promote benefits um, in metabolic health. Does the deprivation of cholesterol have any adverse effects on metabolic health? And this could be argued if you look at some of the higher intensity statins. Yeah. Um, and I think there's two ways to look at it. Um, it could be mechanistically plausible, but then you see those same things with the PCSK9 inhibitors, not really. So perhaps if you have a physiological level, so I don't know, say like an ApoB of 30, um, then that could be sufficient substrate for that binding. And then really it's not until you would get to an extreme that you see any um, detrimental effect on your metabolic health. So it's something that I'm kind of 
bouncing around in my mind, and I don't know that we'll have an answer for that in the near future. Um, but it's something that's certainly interesting because, as you mentioned, the metabolic health piece of that is another target. Uh, it seems like we're always trying to find this magical target or exercise, mm-hmm. medic, you know, anything to improve metabolic health. And there are some things that um, in that field have some promise, like the uh, mitochondrial uncouplers, things that promote yep. thermogenesis, which tends to be the rate-limiting step there because you can't push temperatures too high without adverse effects. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of various vectors that are promising in that field, including for metabolic health. One other important point to remember, well, one is that we're not 100% sure what the main endogenous ligand for this receptor is. It was actually one of, it was actually the first orphan receptor, I believe. We've known about it for over 30 years. And um, we found all these different receptors that um, we knew receive a targeting molecule or signaling molecule or hormone, but we didn't know what that molecule was. And we, we just think that is cholesterol. So that begs the question, where is it happening? It's happening inside the cell and even inside the nuclear, nucleus, nuclear receptor. So it's not cholesterol that's circulating throughout the bloodstream. It is, and it's certainly not lipoproteins that's circulating through the bloodstream either. It's actual cholesterol, which makes up a significant portion of the cell wall in all humans. So perhaps those two things, serum lipoprotein levels or serum cholesterol levels, might not super closely correlate with cholesterol levels that are binding that receptor. Right, because it's important to realize that most cell types um, can produce plenty of cholesterol for the activities that they have to carry out to support their own cell membranes and you have all this discussion around the the cell membrane flux and flexibility and polyunsaturated versus saturated fatty acids Um, but by far and large you can have many physiologic functions that remain completely unaltered even Mm -hmm. with very low serum levels of cholesterol yep so moving on to our next topic i suppose um let's tackle this alzheimer's research debacle because a lot of people have um, you know, are now convinced that uh, let's say amyloid beta uh, is not even a real thing uh, that people don't develop these plaques mm. this was faked in the mouse research so they probably don't exist in humans and I think we can say just to clear this up that amyloid beta is real uh, it, it does exist in animal models it exists in humans it is correlated with dementia in general uh, but you also have some populations who are going to have some amyloid beta that shows up whenever they do this imaging and they don't have cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. And you are going to see some people who have cognitive decline without amyloid beta because there's multiple ways to get to uh, cognitive impairment or different dementias. Yep. So it's not just the Alzheimer's subtypes. So that's important to remember. Uh, but essentially, it comes down to these... Oh, what was the uh, the Western blot data that was problematic? So these Western blots, if you're looking at a, a scientific paper, sometimes you'll see these sort of dashed lines that go across, and that represents uh, protein that was found in the uh, signaling that in the sample of tissue that's there, and it's very specific to that protein. So there's controls and so forth, and with the Western blots, it's been known for a long time that these are problematic. So I, yep. I saw some papers where people were advocating for some sort of 
digital fingerprint on the actual machines that are producing these and interpreting these mm-hmm. so that they couldn't just be spliced or copy pasted or, or doctored um, and there was actually a study where they intentionally faked western blot data uh, and they had some Whew. And this was actually a, a positive study it sounds oh. bad at first but they then pulled in these uh, editors that review western blot data for journals and uh, they had I them see. try to pick out the fakes versus the real ones and like an internal audit exactly yeah and i think this is a good premise for a study because they were trying to their hypothesis was these are problematic even the experts won't be able to tell them apart and the experts accuracy was 52 percent so just marginally Hmm. better than guessing because you have a 50 50 shot if you're just flipping a coin or guessing just pick b so it seems that with this entering the spotlight now probably there'll be some technology developed to better track where these images were generated um, and give them more i guess Mm. reliability and credibility as opposed to just an image there that you know has known to be a problem for a long time i wonder if the same concerns are present with southern blots and northern blots for like ribonucleic and deoxyribonucleic acids I believe Western blot is just for protein, and then the other kind of like offshoots of that are for uh, different molecules. But I don't see how they would also not be problematic. So they seem like they would also be problematic. Yeah, there's probably room for manipulation and falsification in the sort of publish or perish landscape that I understand yep. sort of the industry and the, the research community to be. So I, I know with the ribonucleic acid those tend to degrade very quickly so yep. any sort of intervention to tag those they just have to be developed without any delay in the ability to you know produce that blot image mm-hmm. so it's just something that the industry would have to be mindful of whenever they are developing these sort of tagging technologies to yep. give these things credibility another reason why materials and methods despite being often quite dry is extremely important to include in publishing and also another reason why reproducibility is so important yeah and that's a a point that we'll bring up in another paper that we're going to talk about later is really looking at the materials and methods and how groups are are randomized or if they are balanced or unbalanced but i think we should chat just a bit about uh, the different dementias and and sort of you know why haven't we found anything anything really that works to either stabilize or reverse this after all these years of research. And Mm -hmm. perhaps this paper did give an extra level of importance to amyloid beta. Um, I think it's been cited something like 2000 times. So it was a pretty high profile paper, Um, but targeting amyloid beta doesn't seem to be all that effective. Um, Amyloid beta, some people believe is the body's response for example, to some sort of insult or injury, whether that's a, a latent infection, whether that's just, you know, um, metabolic dysfunction, elevated levels of circulating glucose and insulin resistance in the brain. Mm-hmm. And there's just multiple types of dementia. So for example, the body tries to protect the blood vessels by you know, stabilizing plaque and, and calcifying, yeah. which over time is really maladaptive. You, know, you want stable plaque, you don't want unstable plaque. So suppose it's the lesser evil, but that seems like a similar 
protective mechanism that the, the brain is trying to use to protect itself, but it does seem to generate some toxic byproducts when you look at some of the tissue samples. Uh, but again, how clinically relevant is that? Because you take away the plaques, whatever the underlying process is, mm -hmm. is still going on there, it appears. Yeah, this uh, constellation of diseases known as dementia or neurodegenerative disease has multiple different vectors. And even when you go to a neuropsychiatrist or a, neuro or a neurologist that specializes in this area, that's still not the gold standard of diagnosis. Autopsy and actually um, looking at what area of the brain and taking biopsies and sending them to pathology to see what is in those areas of the brain. Is there tau tangles? Um, groups of tau tangles are actually known as NFTs. So you gotta watch out for NFTs um, developing in your brain as well. Um, NFTs, I suppose, are just particularly pathogenic regardless of where they are. They probably are associated with brain damage. Yeah, definitely associated with brain damage. Um, and then, of course, there's beta amyloid plaques, which um, there's a lot of theories. Basically, the jury's still out, despite there being a treatment that is a monoclonal antibody to beta amyloid plaque, which does remove that plaque over a period of several years. Um, and I believe we've talked about that medication before on the podcast as well, because it is FDA approved, but not covered by Medicare, even if you have that disease. So that's a, an interesting um, from a non-esoteric standpoint as well, from a, I suppose, a clinical or prescriber's standpoint. And then you have other specialized forms of dementia. For example, you have a form of dementia associated with Parkinson's, known as Lewy body dementia, where you have a loss of dopaminergic neurons. Then you also have um, vascular dementia, which you mentioned with the plaque. I think vascular dementia is perhaps the most overlooked yeah, because people are you know, talking about, you know, well, I, uh, you know, I, I don't care how long I live. I just don't want to outlive my mind. And yep. if you've got plaque and artery supply in your heart, which is what most people think of when they think of atherosclerosis, good chance it's going to be in your vertebral arteries and carotid arteries. You're going to yep. have less cerebral blood flow, yep. uh, which I am you know, honestly shocked at the, the cognitive function that people have, you know, normal cognitive function when they have, you know, significant stenosis in their carotids because they're you know, offsetting that with probably some increased vertebral circulation. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you create that turbulence and you have an increased risk for a stroke. So it's yep. best to keep the pipes clean. Yeah, it's definitely best to keep the pipes clean. Another interesting phenomenon that can be seen, we've talked some about how the highest risk of dementia is individuals with very high BMI in middle age that lose weight and that go to a low BMI in old age. So the previously obese, and now they're no longer obese, but even compared to the cohort that's still obese, they have a much higher rate of dementia for multiple reasons. Some might be growth hormone, IGF-1, serotonin, estrogen, loss of peripheral aromatization into beneficial estrogen, which can lead to both vascular dementia and just a demyelinization and less fatty sheath to protect the neurons. But um, another one that we can chat about more is two groups of individuals. They're both heavy nicotine users and they both have mild cognitive impairment. The group that would totally stop nicotine, let's say they're 
octogenarians, they have a pretty precipitous decline in cognitive function. Yeah, and you see that with some of the nicotine use and just neurodegenerative diseases in, in general. So there's likely some protective effect of agonizing mm -hmm. that nicotinic receptor on long-term cognitive functioning. Um, and there's all sorts of insults, like too high of a level of nicotinic signaling is certainly not going to be neuroprotective no. uh, because we know things that excessively stimulate neurons in general are going to be excitotoxic. You're going to induce yep. cell death. So the dose makes the poison or the medicine in, in many conditions. Same thing for iron levels, for example. You, you and I have chatted about this on several occasions where you look at um, things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and you do see higher levels of iron deposits in certain brain mm -hmm. regions in those states versus normal controls. Yeah. Other heavy metals, it, it seems that copper, aluminum, things like that are there, but not necessarily able to be manipulated like something like an iron level could be with just therapeutic phlebotomy. If your yeah. levels are too low or at the same time, you don't want low iron levels that are you know, suboptimal and causing things like depression, anxiety, yeah. poor sleep, and loss of dopaminergic neurons. So there's a balance there. And, and that seems like a fairly easy target to manipulate. People like David Sinclair mm -hmm. brought this into the sort of spotlight with yeah. um, you know, checking these levels. Where is your ferritin at? You don't want it to be too high. There's sort of a, an optimal zone for um, both how you feel and also exercise performance and keeping too high of levels out of the brain. So it's another variable that you want to keep tabs on fairly regularly to make sure that it's not going unnoticed. Yeah, iron is like any other iron in the environment. Iron on a shovel, if you leave it outside, it will rust and do a lot of oxidative damage to that shovel. And the same is true of too much iron that's above the Goldilocks zone of iron that's in your body. There may be a different Goldilocks zone depending on your genetics and depending on uh, your history as well. Yeah, some people are very predisposed to developing high levels of iron. Some people are predisposed to malabsorption, like yep. in celiac, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the take-home points are still going to be for the best prevention for Alzheimer's, exercise, maintain good metabolic health, avoid atherosclerosis, yep. keep your brain active, um, use maybe not nicotine, but something to activate the nicotinic receptors, um, and don't worry about it too much. Mm -hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, uh, as you alluded to, and there's a ton of variables here, but you know, if you're obese, don't think that, well, I'm going to stay obese so I don't get depression, or I'm yep. sorry, don't get dementia. Um, <laughs> That may be because the difference in a person who's obese lifespan and a, a normal BMI is you know, something like five or 10 years. Yep. So perhaps they're just not living long enough to develop those mm -hmm. things yeah, because age is at the end of the day going to be the, the biggest risk factor for you know, any disease you can name practically. Reminds me of metformins and statins. You just live so darn long that you have a higher risk of getting dementia. Yeah. So, you're, so you're telling me that my plan to to be so unhealthy cardiovascularly, so I die of a heart attack before I get dementia is not a good plan. Right, I heard a story once about an accountant who ran the numbers and decided that he would rather die of heart disease than anything else. So he decided he was going to eat whatever he wanted uh, because that way he knew the odds. Hmm. Did he get vascular dementia? 
<laughs> that would be jury's crazy. out yeah. <laughs> we don't know um, let's see what else has come out this week um, another big paper um, that levels of serotonin uh, did not seem to correlate with depressive states so these sort of hypothesis on uh, well you have low serotonin so that's why you're depressed may not be as valid as was once thought mm -hmm. although there are quite a few limitations they only looked at a single subtype of serotonin receptors hmm. and serotonin levels are very difficult to measure I, yeah. I don't think they were doing brain biopsies on these people probably not <laughs> probably not even lps yeah which is a lumbar puncture yeah, invasive procedure that carries a significant risk. Those are things you only do if it's a mm -hmm. ex exceptionally rare diagnosis or a life and death situation. Serotonin does not cross the blood-brain barrier. You have peripheral serotonin and central serotonin, which is in your central nervous system. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter based on the tryptophan amino acid, kind of related to melatonin, which is also based on tryptophan. But... About 90% of your body's serotonin is peripheral, and uh, much, much less of it is central. And you're going to have m most of the therapeutic effect, if you will, of anything to change your serotonin is going to be in the central nervous system. Yeah, and certainly people can experience the peripheral effects of serotonin. Definitely. A common scenario is somebody starts on a medication that increases serotonin, they get a few days or a week of upset stomach initially, yep. and then that tends to subside because receptors sort of mm -hmm. regulate and create homeostatic balance in the mm -hmm. body. But that's an example of peripheral serotonin uh, sort of you know, quelling or calming anxiety mm -hmm. is an example of increased activity of central serotonin and probably many other actions that SSRIs have. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's changes in the microbiome and there's some crosstalk between the microbiome yeah. and the brain. You hear about the gut-brain axis more and more now. And then also the increase in BDNF, which is just like you know, exercise is known to have antidepressant qualities. Mm -hmm. um, that also increases BDNF and sort of neuroplasticity is a bit debated with the neurogenesis and the production of new neurons, but certainly the brain to adapt and learn, you know, healthier thought patterns or, or better coping strategies. It's mm -hmm. a bit like unlocking that gate. Um, and then even with, uh, I'm not sure about all of the SSRIs, but I know with sertraline in particular, it increases levels of allopregnanolone, mm -hmm. which is a naturally produced metabolite from progesterone. And concentrations mm -hmm. of that in the brain do have an anxiety-reducing effect. So there's mm -hmm. multiple ways that these medications work. So just because serotonin may not be as heavily implicated in a single subtype of the serotonin receptor mm -hmm. doesn't you know, say that they have no clinical validity and that yeah. we've wasted billions of dollars developing and paying for these because... They certainly this, work. Yeah, and these can be life-saving medications for many people. Mm -hmm. At one point, I mentioned that um, you know, if, you just, if you take someone and they have, say, depression or anxiety a mild to moderate depression or anxiety, and they ask for a medication, and you don't at least mention the lifestyle measures that you just mentioned. So your exercise increasing serotonin and BDNF, your gut microbiome, your gut health, your diet. Um, without mentioning those things, it's like you're trying to dig out without a shovel. So obviously I'm a fan of shovels. <laughs> um, like uh, that, that should be an assumption. 
on a scale of one to 10, when you're, you mentioned your exercise, you mentioned your gut microbiome, let's throw in lion's mane in there as well um, for BDNF. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how powerful are all three of those interventions when it comes to optimizing your serotonin and BDNF? I mean, if you take the approach of doing everything you can from a lifestyle standpoint to you know, dig yourself out or to prevent depression even, yeah. that's gonna be far more powerful than an SSRI because we know in many cases, I mean, statistically, I think about 70% of people with the more mild or moderate cases get better on an SSRI. Yeah. A little bit harder for severe depression, um, but it's going to be more powerful to have everything in place from a lifestyle standpoint than to simply take a pill and expect yep. things to be resolved. Yep. Even if you are using just a medication because you don't have the ability to exercise or you know your your diet is not what it needs to be, there's still some work to be done you know, with like cognitive behavioral therapy, or if you're actually sitting down and kind of working through these things and know making an effort to improve those lifestyle things when you have this extra tool you're using for a bit of a boost as opposed to you know taking a pill and then another pill to augment that effect yep. and neglecting the pillars of health as we commonly talk about i agree um and on top of that if you're an individual and you have never used or utilized a shovel before or a tool then you should certainly speak with your healthcare provider about how that can be best used. If there's somebody who's never dug a ditch, then even 30 seconds with somebody who has used these tools to dig ditches many times before can be particularly helpful. Yeah, and I guess I didn't answer your question on a scale of one to 10. So we said 70% for mild to moderate. So I yeah. have seven out of 10, I suppose. Yeah. Um, how effective is, you know, let's say we take a natural approach where someone is using some omega-3s, they're taking vitamin B6, which mm -hmm. had a nice randomized trial that came out lately. They're exercising, they're getting sunlight. Um, and let's assume that they have no issue with the time constraints to do all of these things. Mm -hmm. Then I would give that a, a 9 out of 10 because it's not going to work for everybody. But yep. I think anytime you're taking a multifaceted approach over a single faceted approach, there's going to be numerous advantages to that. Definitely. Another thing that we could mention specifically for depression is if you have a mild to moderate episode of depression, if you do nothing at all in six to 12 months, most likely that episode will end as well. The downside of that, it, it sounds pretty decent, but um, the reason why most clinicians want to treat it more aggressively is you feel absolutely horrible and you have horrible lifestyle. A lot of times across the board, all six pillars, all of those are off for six to 12 months. And that's a long time. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, getting someone better faster, it, it, it's a goal, but it really is a health journey mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And you know, for some people that, you know, haven't had a struggle with depression, if you think of sort of that serotonin pathway, and as you mentioned, the, the tyramine, for example, or tryptophan, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. tryptophan, for example, if you are acutely ill, let's say you have the flu, um, there is some evidence that that tryptophan gets converted down a inflammatory pathway, it contributes to some neuroinflammation. And I would say that's fairly similar to what someone would experience with a mild to moderate depression, where 
everything feels like it takes more effort than it should. You just want to lay in bed. Mm -hmm. You just feel generally unwell. Now, people with depression certainly don't run fevers 24-7 and have a chronic cough. But that's sort of an idea of what those people might be feeling. And do you want to feel that way for six months because it's probably going to get better on its own, kind of puts it in context of what are your risks and benefits, just like with any intervention. Speaking of the risk and benefits, a lot of people also ask us, what did people do before we had SSRIs or antidepressants? And obviously there's antidepressants of many different classes. There's NMDA receptor agonists. There is um, dopaminergic medications. There's non-SSRI serotonergic medications. I believe we've podcasted on this before. Before we had those medications, people just felt horrible for that amount of time. However, people in general were better at the lifestyle interventions, but the best of both worlds is both. People also used to have horrible sleep and be extremely stressed, and a lot of their basic physical needs, if you think throughout human history, the last thousands of years, those have not been met. And a lot of times they just died earlier. Yeah, if you look at it in a very you know, evolutionary standpoint, you would have thought that you know depression would have been selected out. Yeah. Um, but we do have the capacity to care about our you know, sick population, so that probably has carried it forward to some degree. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you even see that now with the data and people who are you know, optimistic versus pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And again, there's always the debate of, well, are they just optimistic because they've had good luck and they're healthy? <laughs> or, or are they pessimistic because they've had been dealt a bad hand? Uh, but in general, you know, being optimistic as opposed to being depressed is going to have, this is going to be associated with significantly better health. So mm-hmm. I say it all the time that in general, you want to do things that are associated with better outcomes and avoid things that are associated with worse outcomes. Absolutely. And we have been, we being the medical community, even if you think back to Averroes a thousand years ago or Galen, um, even before that, um, we have been fighting natural selection for a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting rabbit hole we could get down. Perhaps we talk about some historical medical practices in another podcast. Absolutely. Debunk some bad science. Yeah. (laughs) Which was thought to be cutting edge at the time. But live and learn or perish and learn. Um, What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Number of other interesting topics we have on the on the menu. Uh, I think one that's really interesting is the UK's. Uh, I'm not sure if it's their FDA or or what the governing body is there, but they have decided to have vaginal estrogen available over the counter, mm-hmm. um, which I think in general is a good thing. It's uh, exceptionally low dose, so not likely to cause negative systemic side effects. Like if you had a let's say a an oral estradiol tablet, mm-hmm. high dose over the counter, you're probably going to see some adverse effects there yep. just on average. And then with the vaginal, it is a fairly low dose. So it's 10 micrograms is all you're getting. So mm-hmm. it's probably going to relieve you know, vaginal dryness. It might have a little bit of efficacy against vasomotor symptoms, like hot flashes and night sweats. Yep. But when you look at the doses that are used in studies to typically relieve those things, it's usually closer to a 50, 100 at minimum uh, dose of that Mm -hmm. uh, estradiol that's going to be effective in relieving those symptoms. Um, I I wouldn't want people to be misled and think that the vaginal estrogen is going to protect their bones. Correct. So I think it's still important to have some education around that, probably some information on the labeling. Just for genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Yeah, because that's really the the sweet spot, the Goldilocks zone for that medication. And very low risk, but at the same time, you're not getting the same upside as you would from, let's say, a higher dose vaginal or a systemic topical therapy. Hopefully it's just enough to where all those individuals seek out a healthcare provider that can advise them well about um, if they perhaps need more. Or if perhaps they need less, but probably more on the other end. Yeah, I think so. And I hope that that stimulates a, a dialogue between patients and providers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great solution for perhaps women that have been out of, that been in menopause now for 15 or 20 years. And they're told, well, you know, this is just the mm-hmm. way you are now. Um, yep. Because there's ineffective, low-risk treatment there. I mean, there's even vaginal estrogen used in you know, post-CBA mm-hmm. patients, you know, with in consultation with the neurologist, of course, mm-hmm. um, even post, uh, you know, breast cancer patients, uh, uh, in consultation with an oncologist, of course. I'd love to see the diversion rates or the usage rates of a really low dose labial testosterone for women, maybe 50 or 100 micrograms. Yeah, I think that would be an efficacious dose. I don't think that that would ever be pushed as something that could be over the counter just because it is a testosterone is a controlled substance whereas estradiol is not because no i'm not aware at least in the united states and many developed countries many developed countries i'm not aware of anyone uh, abusing estradiol for its Mm -hmm. typically performance enhancing benefits although i see these articles all the time and where it's like oh athletes use these aromatase inhibitors yep. to get rid of the harmful effects of estradiol hmm. uh, when in reality probably having a slightly higher estradiol yep. is going to be advantageous for athletic performance these things are typically masking agents yeah 
agreed 100%. That is um, somewhat ironic. I, I do still think that, at least in, maybe not in the UK, but in some country where testosterone is not controlled, there, had, there has to be a minimally efficacious dose that is so low that it is just not worth it to use it off-label. Yeah, like how many grams of testosterone cream would you have to take a bath in to yeah. derive some sort of benefit or the potency yeah. is just so low that the effort to get that benefit is just not worth it? It'd mm-hmm. be quite a deterrent if you had to... 50 grams of cream per day. We know people don't even like putting on sunscreen. So <laughs> would they do that for uh, testosterone? It's not going to even protect them from the sun. I'd like to see them try. <laughs> <laughs> be an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm see what else we have on the topics hard to beat talking about over-the-counter testosterone oh this was a fun one Uh, another study was fruit makes you and your liver fat Uh, that wasn't the the headline Mm -hmm. i believe it was something along the lines of um, dietary fruit intake effect on liver biomarkers Um, and these were patients with known uh, napld Mm non-alcoholic fatty liver disease so fairly well known that excess fructose is going to make a sick liver sicker. I I think that kind of goes without saying. Yep. Um, And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier when it's really important to look at the methods and materials and where things properly randomized, um, which we don't have access to because this article is behind a paywall, but we do have the outcomes data. So the experiment seems very simple. Um, You have one group of NAPLD patients told eat less than two servings of fruit per day. You have another group that's told eat four servings of fruit per day. Hmm. And at the end of the trial, which I believe was six months, I may be misspeaking there, but the group that was told to eat more fruit had a BMI about six points higher and significantly worse health, a number of different health parameters. Yep. But if, like if I'm looking at myself, that would be the equivalent of myself putting on about 40 pounds in six months just from eating extra fruit. So I actually, I crunched the numbers on this. I was like, well, what if I just added four extra bananas a day to my current diet? Uh, and I assumed that my mm-hmm. metabolic rate did not increase whatsoever. Um, that would still only be enough calories for about 20 pounds. So eight bananas per day assuming that your metabolic rate doesn't increase with the weight whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So it'd probably be closer to 10 or 12 extra bananas per day. Uh, yep. That seems like a lot of bananas. You could say it's bananas. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that your general healthy population needs to restrict their fruit intake. Nope. Someone who has either alcoholic or non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease probably needs to take a look more at the either the alcohol that caused it or yep. high fructose corn syrup before they go about you know limiting fruit for sure but in someone who is trying to pull all of the levers and, and cross off every variable they can in terms of reducing that disease state of fatty liver you know cutting out fructose for a period of time until the liver is restored to a state mm-hmm. of health uh, might make some sense i mean you're certainly not going to I could argue you're certainly not going to have a detriment if you're eating, let's say, five or six servings of vegetables mm-hmm. as opposed to two servings of vegetables yep. and three servings of fruits. Fruits just tend to taste better. A more interesting study to me would be 
instead of eat less than two or four, uh, three to four, whatever they told them, if they took one group and told them, eat the fruits that have really advantageous, healthy fiber to carb ratios. And then the other group told them to eat the fruits that had very disadvantageous fiber to carb ratios, or perhaps track the two groups and um, you have the limitation of self-reporting. But to me, that would be more clinically applicable. However, I'm going to tell patients to eat the fruits with more fiber anyway. So perhaps that's even not a, a, that interesting of a study. Uh, give one arm of the study four servings of wild blueberries per day. Yes. Great fiber source. And the other arm, four servings of dried dates with the incredibly hmm. high sugar and fructose content. Hmm. I bet those would be two very different groups, wouldn't they? Yeah. And dates are delicious. I don't tend to consume them a lot. Wild blueberries, like mm -hmm. something that I do consume quite yeah. regularly, typically about a cup mm -hmm. per day. Yeah. Dried dates are essentially a natural sugar alternative. And if you doubt this, then you can reduce them down into date syrup. Then it is almost indiscernible <laughs> from like molasses or, or liquid or just a, you can use it as syrup for pancakes. It's, it's a sugar. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. So just because something is natural, yep. um, if you produce, if you process it down to such a high degree, it can be indiscernible from mm -hmm. added sugar that is in many things and probably carries the same health risks yeah. in excess. It's, pa it's paleo though. <laughs> So having 100 grams of sugar from, from date syrup is a great thing on a paleo diet. Probably what the cavemen were doing. Yeah, have it with your anabolic French toast for your caveman diet. <laughs> uh, we're going to have the carnivores, paleos, and vegans all after us at some point. Yeah, probably so. Now the paleos are... the vast yeah. majority of people are omnivores. Yeah. I eat mostly paleo for the record, but... Most people are, are still omnivores. It's interesting to see. Here's another study that may exist, but probably doesn't. See the concordance with individuals switching between an extreme diet. For example, an Ornish diet or a vegan diet, or a, which are kind of similar. Or paleo diet or a carnivore diet um, versus, um, you know, like small tweaks to the diet. I bet there's individuals that like to switch between the extreme. Uh, and perhaps certain people switching to that ex extreme uh, helps them with compliance. If they mm -hmm. specifically are, are setting limits, which we know is a powerful behavioral tool, yep. and it's a very strict limit, you know, such as you know only animal products or Correct. eliminating meat products, which is going to eliminate essentially almost all of the saturated fat from your diet unless you're yep. drinking like coconut butter or something, coconut oil. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it could have a higher success rate in terms of adherence to the diet. Not that it's a superior diet, but yeah. just as far as individuals, psychology and willpower and what works for some people, maybe moderation, other people, maybe not. Mm -hmm. The best diet is obviously not a diet at all. It's a, hab it's a habit or habitual eating that you can adhere to. Yeah, it's really a, a lifestyle and just building out the same patterns and, and repetition reinforces those things. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.